everyone and welcome to a new episode of the Geopolitical People podcast. Today we will be discussing if there is a right-wing wave in Europe. There's been some recent electoral results that would point at that way, but we may have different opinions of what is right-wing, what is populism, or if there is actually a right-wing in Europe. For this today, I will have my colleague Ronan Worsford, as always, beside me. How are you doing, Ronan? Very good, Wanfrey. How are you? You feeling good? I'm feeling. I'm feeling fine. This new studio that we that we got is something it's perfect. Yes, it's, it is. It's definitely going to improve the quality. Phenomenal. It is phenomenal. <laughs> and uh, we'll also have joining us our executive producer Alex Perry. She will uh, also be making questions. Maybe she wouldn't be. She won't be talking that much in this episode, but definitely her inputs are always uh, interesting to hear. I would like to jump in there and okay. start to talk about populism what populism is and how it is related to the far right and actually the differences as well. So for me, populism is a term that's used a lot these days, but actually it's it's been around for a long time. And whether or not there's a wave of far right, I think is, is intertwined with the populist movement. So populism is generally characterized uh, by a leader that tries to separate the people from the elite. They often use language where they're anti the establishment, anti the big government. They generally will offer simple solutions to often complex issues with that the country may face. Could you give us an example of that for, uh, that you could come up I mean, an easy example that I can point to right now in Europe would be Viktor Orban. I think he's a classic populist leader. Now, whether or not he's far right, we can talk about later, but I don't believe he is. He is much more against the institutions in the country and aims at, if you look at some of the rhetoric that he uses, so I think just actually recently in a speech, he, he said the globalists can all go to hell. Now, that is a rallying cry to try and say that anyone that's against his agenda in the country are globalists, they're actually anti the, na the nation building and anti the people. And it's this concept of being the people versus the the big elites that really defines populism. People um, against the establishment also like, is something that people we've, against seen, the establishment. we've seen, for example, with the Trump rhetorics during his campaign. It was like, we're here against the establishment, this uh, deep state and things like this. Exactly. So Trump is another great example of using populism. And often these leaders are not necessarily ideologically tied to a particular, say, social conservative or fiscal, um, we'll say... Ideology. Like ideology. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they will shift to see whatever will actually benefit them to speak to the people. So Auburn, over time, has actually shifted to the right. Uh, he's used, say, for instance, the anti-immigration since the immigration wave of 2011 to 2015 and then the continuing sentiments against immigration. He's used that to his advantage by incorporating that into his struggle and, and using sort of a national identity crisis within the populism. Another thing that I would say that the populist leader would often do is try and undermine the democratic system. So... If we, if we again take Hungary for an exa example of that, um, we can look at the implementation of laws that he's trying to actually take away judicial, judicial independence. And by doing this, he basically strengthens his own power and he, and he justifies this by appealing to the people, people as their leader 
the one that can actually save them and he's fighting this corrupt elite. So I think that gives a good overview of what actual populism is. Well, if I can chime in, I would just say that I don't think all populists undermine the, what democracy is in democratic institutions. It just depends on which one, because I think they want kind of the people to be directly engaging with them. So they want to undermine the other institutions, but that doesn't mean they're necessarily undermining democracy. However, if they're trying to push for a more personalized sort of saying a policy or policy making, could you still keep a liberal democracy with that? Because, for example, the example of Orban is a good one. He's proclaimed himself openly as an illiberal. And I don't know if in the, I think they might be against the liberal run. democracy and they're against like some of the democracies we've had in the past. But it doesn't mean that they're against democracy as a whole, because in their sense of democracy, they are the true representation of that group of people. And they're representing their best interests, which for those people is democratic. But I would say just to counter that, I'd say their main goal is to try and remove some of the accountability, which to me fundamentally is undemocratic. It's removing the checks and balances on the people, but it's not necessarily removing the checks and balances towards other elites or other institutions. Those can remain in place. It's trying to give more freedom and more authority to a group of people. To a group of people that align with the idea of the populist leader. Mm. Yes, but if it's the right populist leader, that could be in the entire country. If it's the wrong one, it could be just a small minority. Mm. That could be interesting, for example, if we analyze one day the politics in El Salvador currently with Bukele. Uh, that could be that could be interesting. I would say now if we just try and tie that into far right leaders and yes. how the populace, because I think there is often a lot of overlap. But mm -hmm. do you want to go into some of the difference or maybe some of the characteristics of what a far right regime looks like? And then we can see the similarities and how lots of them are populist, but actually some of the differences as well. Yes. I mean, uh, populism has been related to different ideologies throughout the throughout the years, especially in the last 20 years. I think it's gone. It's got a massive uh, importance in how you want to portray any system. Populism is what you portray as bad. Basically, from your from your media perspective, it might be leftist, it might be uh, right wing, but in particular, what we are seeing in in Europe and in other Western countries is a resurgence of this uh, right wing populism, uh, borderline far right or namely far right. It has several topics where, like every party in each country, has a particular way of seeing it. Why? Because one of the most important components of this right wing populism is the nationalistic view of their mm -hmm. of their reality. And because of this na nationalistic view of their of their own reality, they have different ways of seeing what they what they will be supporting. For example, in uh, in Poland, this uh, nationalism will be represented by in Poland and in Italy for example right now, this nationalism will be represented by a more uh, religious approach to the policy making will be represented in the case of Poland with the homogeneity of their of their society whereas in the in the case of France for example would be on the French sentiment and the language and uh, matters of the of the liking there's given that each nationalism has its historical competences and its historical content it shifts from country to country and that is something that is interesting because it doesn't allow at least so far, these parties, this movement in different countries of the of Europe, to align 
with each other into like a, a more a pan-European movement in a way. There's other aspects as a EU skeptical uh, approach to politics. Even in the before Brexit, there was more of a EU exiting approach. However, it is true that given the, re the given the situation that the UK is facing in the post-Brexit era, these parties have moderated their approach to the EU and they're more seemingly willing to change the EU from inside rather than leaving it. Even now with a, with a threat of Russia where no country would be, would be standing by itself uh, safely. I would like to go touch upon just a little bit of the historical growth of this far right, of this uh, right wing populist movements in, in Europe. And we can trace its big explosion or its big entering the table in the, in both media and, and media outlets like generalist mainstream and also uh, online and so on with the refugee crisis of, uh, after the Syrian war, well, during the Syrian, the Syrian war, especially during the years 2014, 2015, 2016, where these right wing populists went full forward with an anti-migration uh, sentiment. This anti-migration was pointed out at the at the refugee crisis when the European Union was supposed to accept certain numbers of well the quotas of accepting refugees but several countries among them Poland among them Hungary among them the Czech Republic among them others they went on that populism and said that they didn't want these migrants different reasons behind then again these particular parties use migration as a political tool to get into the sentiment, to get into the feeling of a population in Europe that was already struck by the by the financial crisis of 2008, that still has that still didn't go out of that financial crisis of 2008, and that could see in these migrants that were coming and in the migrants that were already in the in the continent, the reason or at least some parts of the society saw them as the reason for their economic problems and for their societal problems. What I want to say with this is that these, these parties have different views, but there are several things that gather them. And I'm going to recap a little bit. Nationalism, anti-migration, and Euroscepticism in whatever way. Uh, Some of the defining have. characteristics of yes. far-right and populist, or I think predominantly far-right. Predominantly these are strategies that the far right uses, mm. but you can use, these are strategies that the far right or, or ideologies that the far right has, but that they've used in a populist way. And that's why they become this. Well, it's not that why they've become. I think in my opinion, populism and far right just goes hand in hand. Often, yes, I, I agree. Often, yes. So I, I would agree with a lot of that. But then another thing which we're talking about offline before, before this uh, interview was social conservatism and how that may be pointed to as now maybe a more prominent feature of the far right. And I think we had differing views on some of that. So my view personally is that maybe the, some of these parties haven't really changed their stance too much on things such as LGBT rights, social welfare benefits, things like this. The main difference to me is that what we deem as a normal centrist policy is has actually progressed. I mean, that's a natural almost course of things. That's why it's called progressive party. It's always trending to move towards that. But if we look at, say, Italy's, Italy's new leader, uh, Maloney, she's calling back to the need for traditional conservative values. And I think that is very indicative of 
what a lot of the right-wing parties in Europe have appealed to do because I think maybe as you were saying before, it's a pushback to the to the progressiveness that maybe has accompanied the last 15 years in terms of most countries legalizing same-sex marriage, legalizing abortion for women's rights, issues such as that. However, I would like to I would like to touch here because I think I understand your point. However, what I think is that I, I see it from a different perspective. What I believe is that we have normalized in our societies discourses that were attributed to the far right up till a point when we are not able to distinguish the center right or the conservative right from the far right in many cases. For example, the motto of uh, Fratelli d'Italia, Meloni's party during the elections was God, Fatherland and Family. This is the same uh, slogan that the fascist party... As Mussolini, yeah. Exactly. This is the same slogan that the fascist party used to have. The problem is that we, at one point in our recent history, we saw this as a problem, we saw this as fascism, but what we are seeing right now is that these speeches, these public speeches that were considered to be far right 20 years ago, because they were related to fascism, for example, as clearly is this one. Right now, we've taken the fascist content out of it and we're saying, ah, no, this is traditional. And we don't call it fascist anymore. We call it traditional. It's a rebranding. It's a rebranding in a way. It's a reappropriation of certain symbols. But I think we have to acknowledge as well that there is a lot of people within a society that maybe are more conservative, predominantly with mm-hmm. religious backgrounds that maybe didn't agree with a lot of the changes that society was taking, even if it didn't really affect them, because often it did not. Let's not pretend otherwise. But a lot of the time out of different things, say fear or a lack of knowledge about what it actually entails. And I think the same thing can be a terrible situation. Exactly. And we can then use these other wedge issues to cover up some of the socioeconomic problems because the say these far right populist parties, they're not actually fixing any social socioeconomic issues that are in society. They're much more interested in driving these traditional values because I think that they've also acknowledged that in the wake of, as you rightly pointed out, the financial crisis, 2008, 2009, there was not this space maybe for the left to grow the welfare packages to to grow the economies that they potentially were over the 15 years prior to that, where Mm -hmm. we had a huge promotion of an investment in education, infrastructure, because this public spending actually does pay off in the long run. Mm -hmm. But when the countries are all facing really harsh socioeconomic climate because of the Eurozone crisis and and the whole fallout from the US economy crashing... These these benefits have not been able to be offered by the left. And then I would say the voters there have then run away because they're not necessarily inspired or they don't actually see any real benefit from the policies being proposed. Uh, and then that can actually drive some of the voters to the these right-wing players who don't actually just necessarily talk too much about these issues, but then use these other issues such as migration, such as uh, conservative values, such as nationalism, national identity, national culture as really important issues to try and win some of these voters, which are kind of disillusioned with mm-hmm. the state of politics in their country. Mm-hmm. So 
I think and a lot of the time the approach from the EU has not been to address these underlying issues. It's been to say that these people are xenophobic, these people are uneducated, these people have been subject to disinformation. Regardless if that any of that is true or not, that's not a way to try and win it's back no some of these votes, vo- yes. voters that, that have feel disillusioned with the state of politics. Mm-hmm. And I think definitely it's given rise to the populist rhetoric because then people say, oh, look, the Brussels, Brussels people are against us. Mm-hmm. They're talking down to us. Yes. And actually it makes the situation worse. Yeah, and I, I would agree. Actually, this was a conversation that we were having before. For me, this movement, and now we'll debate whether if it's a, a wave or not, just like going in the ideology and, and, and more in why, because we can agree that it's, a, that it's a, in a way on a rise. These parties are in a way on a rise. Where if, whether if the ideas are new or not, that is something that we can agree, but that they are these far right parties or populist right wing parties are entering parliaments and they're in both regional and national parliaments or they are actually getting into power. I think that's something that the recent examples of, of elections in Sweden and Italy cannot, cannot say. I, I would otherwise. go, yeah, I, w- I was going to touch on Sweden. Just, just, just because I wanted, I wanted to make, yes, I wanted to make a point. And the point is, it's a little bit of topic, but I think it also makes a little bit of sense. When the economic crisis hit in 2008, it hit really hard certain countries in mm-hmm. particular. In these countries, what we were talking about back in the day was of having a leftist populist wave. Uh, we had Syriza in Greece, we had uh, Cinque Stelle in Italy, we had uh, Podemos uh, grew up in Spain. Uh, in Portugal, the, the leftist was also like gaining, gaining strength, blah, blah, blah. There were these, these parties in these countries where some of them got into power, for example, Syriza did in Greece, but they didn't, and I agree with you, that they didn't reach a position or they didn't, or they just didn't, uh, or just they couldn't, fix the economic situation that we were having. And so instead of focusing that much in the economic situation, they were pushing these agendas. And these agendas are like when you said the agenda, there's social aspects and there's economic aspects. These social aspects that were pushed during the beginning of the tens and now progressiveness, LGTB uh, protection laws or protection or uh, same sex marriage, same sex marriage, feminism, uh, pol- uh, policy of open borders, mm-hmm. things like this, they have been taken since the left could not fix these economic issues. It could not or did not. Because I mean, there you can, uh, you can debate whether if they could not or it's the European Union or it's the national parties, blah, blah, blah. The point is what I perceive here is a reaction. It's literally a reaction of those values being pushed forward in a moment. Uh, representing the part of uh, uh, a big part of the society that now, because of these parties have been here for enough time, not too much, but enough time, everything is related to everything comes all together. So now what these parties are seeing, there is no economic alternative. What there is, is a reaction to these progressive values that were uh, being pushed through in the, in Europe in particular. In the beginning of the 2010s, and then in the in the decade of the tens, basically. We'll throw to you, Alex, for a second here. Just oh, thank you. So I have like kind of two things that connects to this. Is first kind of about this reaction and about kind of this like you were talking about how the left wasn't fulfilling these needs, which I agree with. 
I think what can't be explained by this is the almost overreaction. Like we can see these parties pushing traditional values that almost the society isn't prepared for. For example, I think like banning abortions and being so hard, like Poland's a really great example for this. Although there's probably a portion of the society that's supportive of it. I don't think these parties have popular support across mm. the board to do such harsh measures. So why are they doing that would be like my question for you guys. Mm -hmm. And then while you're talking about this, where these far right parties gain traction, I think Poland's also a curious case because they didn't have a huge migration. They didn't have any because they refused to accept refugees and they didn't have an economic crisis. So I would also ask you guys where you think their far right party comes from and why you think these parties are over-traditionalizing things almost. I mean, in my opinion, particularly, every party has an independent reason. Every country has an independent reason for being conservative. And in the particular reason of Poland, I believe that it's a country that, that had a massive brain drain uh, where a lot of young population was leaving the, the country. First, you need to, in a way, and I think the people... Usually the people that leave tend to be more progressive than the people that stay. Yeah. It's a, it's to not generalize, I completely agree. Generalize. Like people that go to university and young people, both demographics tend to be much more left-leaning mm -hmm. than the older generation and the non-university educated population. Um, so when you have that big drain, then the, obviously that plays a part. Mm -hmm. The second, well, it also, it also a historical matter, in my opinion, in, in the particular case of Poland. I mean, Poland has been invaded in the last hundred years by the two sides that they have, mm -hmm. and they just created, well, they just created their own country, basically. They just came to be properly independent after uh, the Soviet Union having them as a, as a satellite state. And so it's a matter of, restating their own nationality. It's a matter of their own refoundation in a way. And I think that it's really appealing for a lot of people that were there before, for a lot of people that they were living in the, in the communist times, for example. And then now they have another, you can call it master. It's clearly a different approach. Brussels is not the Moscow of 1960, but you can, as an internal, uh, as an internal entity, as an internal party, booster that idea that you have to be that you have to be your own and you have to grow and you have to come back to your to your to your to your roots because that's what makes you different and that's what's make you flourish and that's what's gonna defend you from the people that are around i think and i think duda plays this up a little bit because uh he he uses some of this populist rhetoric as well But the secondarily thing like he talks about trying to build the polish culture protect the polish identity and Poland is the most religious country in Europe. I think it's 82% or something actually would say on a, in a uh, referendum if they're, that they're actually religiously affiliated, which is number one in within the EU. So as part of that, I think that he plays to this statistic maybe and then tries to make that into a Polish identity. And then I would not say that he's necessarily far right in and of himself, but he... he Place this social conservativeness of the of the demographics of the Polish people. I, I would say, like, if, if we then look at say some other countries, I I think it's interesting if we look at say Sweden and Germany. Sweden they've got one prominent far right party, SD, the Social Democrats. The social Democrats. They 
have they were founded in the 1990s early 1990s and since then they've steadily grown support but if you look over the last 10 years the rhetoric hasn't really changed actually it's probably lessened it's it's become less extreme and the reason that these players are doing this to sort of maybe legitimize legitimize themselves more um, in the most recent Swedish election, they they took a record vote share for them of 21% just mm-hmm. a few months ago. And this actually enabled them, I think their last election before that, they, they received 18%, almost 18, 17.5%. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's not a massive growth. The difference is now they're actually part of the government, not officially actually, they they guaranteed supply for some conditions being placed on the government. So it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of a bit different in their case. Yeah, but that was the second there's largest... A, there's a sort of cordon sanitaire in Sweden, both in Sweden and in... Uh, they've got they've got a joint party mm-hmm. coalition ruling now and the right-wing parties banded together. And after the 2017, 2018 election, sorry, they basically, all of them came out and said that they would not work with SD mm-hmm. categorically. They're against Swedish values. They're against what Swedish people stand for. Now... I think these parties have readjusted their thought about that just because they realize that they will never actually get into government again in Sweden if they don't deal with this huge 20% of the population that is not is going further right than them. So mm-hmm. they've struck sort of a medium balance where they've said, okay, you can give us guarantee of supply in parliament so we've got enough votes to get our agenda through mm-hmm. in exchange for some policies, but the, but the SD party is not part of the governing coalition necessarily Mm -hmm. so it's kind of a weird middle ground but i don't think it's really changed that much and i think actually sd has come further away from the extreme far right which with the with which they were founded um at least in a stated they have have legend neo-nazi roots in their funding yeah but but jimmy orkerson i think is the leader of the party and he definitely has changed what he says around immigrants he's still very anti-immigration but the neo-Nazism has gone out to sort of make them more palatable, or maybe he's changed ideologically. I don't know. Secondly, I would just touch on Germany. We can see in the recent elections in Germany, Angela Merkel's CDU party, center-right party, their vote share collapsed, really, when she wasn't running. And so Olaf Scholz, the new chancellor, his party, the SPD, they didn't really change much in their vote share, but were able to take power in the government because CDU collapsed and some of those went to AFD, but also some of those went to the Greens and some of those went to really progressive parties. So, But don't you think that the, I think Germany in that sense is a really particular because there were people that would have voted for the Greens, but they were voting for Merkel. Exactly. Well, there were people, I mean, that's the figure of Merkel that would make the difference. I think that's so, the figure that has made in the CDU. So that's that's one thing I was going to say about mm-hmm. the one, maybe a reason why we see these rise of these populist parties is like they often have charismatic leaders that are really good talkers and are able to to get through to people, mm-hmm. whereas some of these will both the centre-left and centre-right parties. There has not been really many outstanding leaders across Europe from these parties. And so this lack of inspiration in the leader and the lack of political leadership, perhaps, has potentially led people to move towards these other parties. Mm-hmm. Whether it's ideological or not doesn't really matter, I guess, but... The people, the vote share could come back with the right leadership for these parties and maybe a more radical agenda, maybe trying to do more if you're a center left party mm-hmm. or a center right party. What I would then ask you though is like once some of these 
far-right parties get into government, they start changing the institutions. And also once the narratives start changing and it makes it a little bit more difficult for them to go away is like what you can see sometimes. Do you think or? I think yeah, that's predominantly only in Hungary and Poland. Like but the, I'd, say, I'd say that's a matter of historical approaches. I think it's it can happen. And I think the history that we have in Europe, in Western Europe in particular, is that we did never have a uh, communist government, for example, in, in Western Europe for different reasons. We didn't have it. But we did have far-right governments. We did have far-right mm. governments that were uh, plainly accepted. Like, you can argue that... That many leaders, I'm not, I'm not even going to go now just to not get into trouble. But you could argue that many leaders throughout the 20th century in Western Europe, they were far right. In France, in the UK, I'm not even going to talk about Southern Europe. That's why I, that's why if maybe it's because of my own country's experience. That's why I would agree with that, that Alex has said, that when the far right gets into power, they are more prone to change the institutions than when the so-called far left, even though I don't think there is really a far left right now in in Europe, uh, gets into the into the institutions. How do you see it as an outsider? How do you how do you perceive it? From my perspective, the only country that's really been actively trying to under undermine the judicial system and a, and the, is Hungary. Is Hungary and mm-hmm. again. The EU has been uh, fighting this, and this has been a long game with Hungary. And the EU then withholds funds, which they've done again this year. And Hungary now is actually softening a lot of their stance. And I think this is kind of a continual game. I don't, I don't actually think that any of the far right parties necessarily will completely undermine the democratic systems in these countries. That's not the platforms that they're necessarily mm-hmm. built on. Originally, a lot of them were built, as you said very much earlier, about uh, Euro skepticism trying to get out of Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can look at the rise of Le Pen. Can... Le Pen is the perfect example of being anti Europe and pro Russian, and suddenly no. <laughs> another one, the Dutch Gerd Wilders, mm-hmm. he's also grew massively in popularity in 2014, riding on, say, UKIP's mm-hmm. successes in the UK mm-hmm. to try and make the EU out to be the problem for all the country's own internal issues. But again, his popularity has dropped off massively and his stance has softened a lot since Brexit has happened because nobody is really talking about leaving the EU anymore. That whole thing has changed. So the populist rhetoric, I think, has really shifted a lot as well to be much less... It's still anti-EU, but much less about leaving the EU, just about trying to show the people in Brussels... Yeah, showing their teeth, showing their exactly. They can fight back. They can fight for the people. Yes, in the end, if you if you pose, if you create yourself as an entity that is fighting against Brussels for your people, you can still get the votes. I think that's, for example, I think that Fidesz is is the perfect example of that. And because I mean, as we said before, and, and, Fidesz is not a, a far right party in the Hungarian Fidesz, context. I don't think it is a necessarily far right party. It's a populist. It's a purely populist exactly. party centered in Orban with that would, uh, as we say in Spanish, it would dance to whoever dances better. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. It says it's, um, 
I mean, it's a pragmatic approach that would lead you to, to problems because that pragmatic is based on the idea of one person. It's not necessarily based in the idea of the country. That's exactly. what I think so, I mean, makes the populist... Uh, so, yeah, I think this is kind of a characteristic of populism, but could you guys see a leader right now that's like truly far right that you don't really see them changing their values so much? Like, or are most of them pretty flexible? I mean, we've even seen Maloney changing from when she was campaigning to even just a few weeks after she's taken power. Some of those, yeah, that, but that, that rhetoric might have been scaled back. But that's what I think. That's that's one thing that I that I that I believe it's the most important part. When they get into power, when any of these parties get into power, they are in a minority in the end. So they have to deal. They have to deal with the reality of the international war, particularly in a contest of of. Mm. proximate uh, of close war as we have right now with Russia like there's not much that's why I was I have here writing geopolitics go over ideology and in this case they are going over ideology Orban Hungary voted uh, in favor of the sanctions of Russia and then in some other they they abstain whatever but they had to vote in favor of the sanctions of Russia from the EU because the sanctions had to be implemented in a, in a EU level and the EU forced Hungary to vote for, for in favor of those. So the reality then when you, when you see that the funds are not coming, when you see that you cannot rule your country nor your borders, how you, how you maybe wish or how you promoted that you were going to do, then you have to deal with Brussels and you have to deal with, with every other country. For me, the problem is in the way. For me, the problem is in the long way until getting the power. Because in this long way mm. until getting the power, they foster these racist xenophobic and i agree uh, and i those rhetoric normalize normalize some of the they rhetorics. normalize them and there is one point where these rhetorics have been so normalized that they can actually enforce them that is a real that is what it's i a possibility that is what i for perceive sure. what i perceive is that is the metaphor i'm gonna make the metaphor of the wave <laughs> i made it three times today the wave brings the like the the a wave it first before having a wave, you have the water going deeper into the sea. Mm-hmm. And it charges, so to say, I'm not a physician, but it charges, so to say, and then it comes. Why I think that physicist. we are... Just, a physician, physician, a physician wouldn't... Physician. Uh, <laughs> what I perceive with this movement is that right now is gaining this, gaining this power with the rhetorics, with whatever. It's gaining its power even within the population. I don't think the people that vote for... Meloni mm-hmm. are fascist necessarily. I think mm-hmm. there's fascists voting for Meloni. Of course. I think there's a lot of fascists voting for Meloni. But, but I don't think that just because you vote Meloni doesn't make you a fascist. Exactly. I agree. Exactly. I, I, I think we can agree on that. So what I, what I think that we are seeing is this preparation of the, of the, of the political, uh, arena normalizing them, normalizing some sort of discourses, normalizing approaches that right now, we're seeing it as a problem, but a big part of the population is not. And the more these, the more these ideas get normalized in more countries around Europe, the more difficult we'll see, will be to see that wave that is creating coming ashore. Because we will not perceive the wave, because this is how the, mm-hmm. because this is how it was developing. And in the European Union, that uh, we want to believe or like Brussels want to sponsor, even though I disagree in many things with Brussels, particularly in the economic policy with Brussels, the reality is that it's a European Union that at least 
promote some values of inclusiveness, values of some sort of open borders, even though then we close them, but what they promote in a way, what's, what's good to, what's good to be seen doing are those values are LGTB rights are uh, LGBT rights are fem it's feminism is a fight against climate change acknowledging that it's a reality and little by little these movements change the dynamic of the public uh, debate and at one point they're becoming I mean these parties in in Sweden for example in the in the European Parliament they were saying well now we can just not do stuff about climate change uh, so sorry Sweden uh, in Finland. Mm. In Finland, there's been people openly saying that well, now we can we can just ignore this, or uh, we can or we can deny that there is a violence, systematic violence against women, or we can deny that there's that there's systematic violence against LGBT communities, or we can deny that there is uh, a certain human rights to certain groups of people. saying this? What? That you can deny like these things? It's the far right party? These speeches promoted by some parties on the far right, but by the far right parties, they, they are taking these uh, speeches and they're making them part of themselves. They could be before. I'm not, I, and I think I agree with Ronan in that. Well, I agree with you both in that sense. I think these speeches were there before, but they are voice, but they were, they were deemed as like, ah, this okay this is we we've already gone through this we've already gone over this like it this is fine this is over whereas now these debates that were forgotten at least for the younger generation mm. suddenly they're back in the table even though they were supposed to already been overcome they are part of the table and that's why i call this a wave because i call this a wave of right wing which will normalize speeches and and public debates in part in general that will make these ideas get into power, even if it's not through those parties, it's going to be the conservative parties of the countries absorbing these, uh, these uh, perspectives to get more votes. I understand what you're saying for sure, but it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Mm -hmm. I think I, I just wanted to touch one last thing before we wrap up. Do you think, because I, I, I've read a bit about this and maybe... Uh, it's an interesting take on on the situation. Could it be that this rise in in the far right, say across Europe, then is due to a potential identity crisis of the EU? Like, what is the EU's mandate? The EU was built as a financial union, but has since maybe evolved into much more a promoter of human rights, promoter of minority rights, a, pro pro a promoter of social values, democratic and also values. democratic values. And then also, as you as you rightly point, uh, pointed out there, climate change, which we haven't touched on at all. These things are now really part of what the EU is known worldwide for pushing. But it wasn't what it was built on, necessarily. Mm -hmm. And it's maybe an interesting discussion whether that is actually part of the reason why there's this pushback that the populism has actually taken over because people see it maybe as a target because they say, oh, the EU wasn't actually for that. Now they're mm -hmm. trying to impose these things. Whether that's a good or a bad thing is yet to be seen, but the 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 fact is that you could say that potentially the EU has changed, and this is just trying to maybe rebalance the people are happy with where the EU is now. 
It could be. It could definitely be. I mean, in the end, the European Union, uh, as you rightfully mentioned, the European Union is a purely economic union that has developed in the last 20, 30 years into something more than a purely economic union. And I agree with that, but I believe that that could be a problem, for example, for the um, for the older members of the EU. Whereas for the newest members of the EU, from the, like the, the 2004 enlargement, then 2007, then 2013, those enlargements, those countries, when they entered the European Union, yes, they probably entered because of the economic benefits. But that image of what the European Union wanted to be was already there. So I don't think that... I guess I, it doesn't necessarily matter to a populist leader. They were it doesn't with. necessarily matter to a populist leader, that's for sure. But it is true, I agree with you, that the European Union has been trying to push forward to be something more than an economic entity. I mean, even now, for new members to be accepted, they have to reach certain levels of... Democracy. Democracy, human rights. Human rights, all of this. Respectful. I mean, like, the European Union has been one part of the conversations with uh, Iran on the, on the yeah, nuclear exactly. agreement. It's, it's a very uh, powerful block it's on the world stage. Block. Like I would yes. say... The third major competitor besides China and the and the US, I think it's. But I think then then what the European Union is striving here is for its own survival, and I think its own sur- its its own survival. It's only going forward into a more cohesion and a more uh, cohesive entity because on the economic aspect, there is no there is not much to do anymore for it to grow, for it to evolve. It's got to evolve in that way, so it might be. It might be part of a, of an internal crisis. However, I also believe that it's it's a national it's a national crisis at many levels. Our national crises are ma- at many levels fostered by growing inequality, mm-hmm. which is happening everywhere in the EU. Everywhere uh, in the world, actually, this is a, the first the year on record. I believe that every, every country in the world had an increase in discrepancy it's, in inequality. It's an so. increase. It's it's an increase in inequality. I mean, if you see. Two examples, I would say, for, for giving this interesting would be Sweden and, and, uh, and Spain in that sense. Sweden has grown, like the, uh, the SD, Demo- party. SD party has grown more and has reached this point of, of growth as in the last September elections. And we could say that it's a lot of fostered because of uh, the violence that has been going on in Sweden in the last exactly. years. Which local, is, it's a local issue. And it's, it's a local issue. And factually, it's true that there's been it, an increase in gun violence, there is especially increase, in highly immigrant areas. Exactly. I, like, which no are, one would deny that. But which are characterized by, by much more inequality than exactly. other areas. And for example, I would, I would like to give you particularly the, the example in Spain in 2018 when Vox, far-right party, mm-hmm. Uh, got its first representation in a regional parliament, it was in Andalusia. In 2018, what happened was that Spain had a migrant crisis. It wasn't that exaggerated, but it wasn't that much. It wasn't like Italy in 2016 mm-hmm. or Greece for years. Yeah. Uh, it was an, on the numbers of the tens of thousands. It was some sort of, somewhere around 80,000 uh, uh, migrants came through the, through the strait. What happened? Those migrants that came to Spain, they, instead of being, instead of being properly taken care of by the entire state, not just saying by the EU, I'm saying by the entire state of a 47 million population country, it is not that much of a big deal. 80,000 people. To take care of 80,000 people. And you don't even have to like put them in massive houses or whatever. Like you can, it is not that big. It is economically, it's viable. It is nothing for the for the gdp as the one that spain has mm-hmm. 
The reality was that the inaction of the institutions, regional institutions, national institutions, and supranational national institutions led to a big chunk of these migrants being locked up in the small towns that were uh, absorbing this migrant and population. And were not equipped to deal with it. And them. these towns were already the poorest region or mm. the most unequal region in Europe with the highest unemployment rates. Yeah, and you, ch- you check a bunch of brand new immigrants exactly so i think i think it's i think inequality that ramping inequality is also part of that cry of that uh national how do you call it uh not national crisis that uh identity crisis identity crisis that you might say we can call it identity crisis as long as we want but in my opinion as long as we don't address the real issue that is inequality that is growing and this inequality is growing because of some economic policies Yes, we can have a we can have a, a, a crisis in whatever, but that that is going to happen all the time. I don't think there's been more changes in our societies now that there were in the in ten years in the ten years between nineteen hundreds and nineteen twenty. So, uh, or in the years between eighteen eighty and nineteen hundreds. I mean, there's always a progressive change. The problem is that this population they are finding scapegoats and mm. there's uh, parties that are finding this, that are using these scapegoats that can be migration, that can be the elites, that can be LGTB lobbies, as they call them, that can be feminist lobbies or whatever. They're finding them as scapegoats without offering a real alternative mm. because these parties, they don't have a really strong economic content. They don't have some magical formula to solve the economic problems. And the reality, the reality is that they are growing as, as every other. They don't have better results mm-hmm. on any, on anything. So it's more on the, on that social part, on that finding the scapegoat for how the situation is. And what we should agree, what we should address is that economic situation, that inequality situation in order to address this. Now, I am not in charge of Brussels, not of Berlin, not of Madrid, not of anything. So I don't know how easy is that to be done. But in my opinion, it's more than a, more than a, uh, an identity crisis. It's a whole crisis of the economic system that has been going on since 2008. That we realize that has or been going on since 2008. The, or even the whole bigger. neoliberal institution that we have at the moment with the capitalist system that the world has, which has been driving, which is could be argued as one of the biggest drivers behind this it's, it's growth a, in inequality. It's rumping. It grows. Yeah, it grows in GDPs. It grows in mass in 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 macro terms. But the reality is that the world is unequal, and it keeps on getting more unequal and more unequal and more unequal. And we're gonna see the more and the more inequality we're gonna see in our countries, the more problems we're gonna see. Now. There's going to be someone that's going to find a scapegoat all the time and there's going to mm. be minorities or there's going to be some rights that they're going to be touched because they are going to be pointed as those because they are disrupting in themselves. And I understand that they are disruptive in their se- in themselves, especially if you have a conservative mentality. They are disruptive, but they are not the real reason why the country is not going right. They're, mm. like, there's... There's a political, like, political economic uh, decision making process underlining what are the problems. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's really interesting as you were talking. You kind of, 
like deconvinced me that there was a wave though, because we can see that like in every one of these groups, there's so much difference for who they pin as the scapegoat. Okay. Like migrants or whatever. But when you really get down to it, like who they pin as the scapegoat, what their foreign policy would be if they gained enough traction to actually like formulate one, like all these things are so different and the underlying causes is very individualized to each country. So I can see that there's a reaction to that push. But as far as like a wave for what could be coming for Europe in the next like however many years, it wouldn't be unified at all. Mm -hmm. So if there's this right wing wave, well, it's going to be like rain because it'll be like very different. It could coming be from each country, even Poland and Hungary, which were united forever in this like populist right wing even though you guys don't think they're right wing but like this brotherhood they're right wing they're both right wing but whether they're both now, now they've separated right like wing. now they're really disagreeing on this matter about well, russia so yeah. they can't even find unity between the two countries that should have been the closest yes but for me i mean there is like poland is a conservative right italy is, 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 a, is a far right, far right. I, I, I would uh, lega nord is far right uh, le pen is far right le pen is far right I mean, the maybe, maybe, maybe Duda is also far right. The problem is that I would consider him more like an ultra conservative yeah. than a far right. Because there He's is very no, much social. Maybe, maybe I would consider him a far right if he was exactly as anti-migration, but with migration in its country. Then maybe I would consider it far right. Mm. But I don't know. I would have. Now no they idea. do have migration. Now they do have migration, but they look like them. <laughs> <laughs> so. It's not. Let's. That's left to see. That's that will be left to see how they how they develop. So overall, we are inconclusive. If there's a way we or not, maybe could you guys summarize like your main points about why you each think like one or two reasons why you're really convinced that for you there is a wave and for you, Ronan, that there's not a wave. Yeah, I mean, for me, I think that it's if we look at the numbers, there has been obviously a shift with more people voting. For the right, for the extreme right parties. But I don't think it's necessarily for fundamental reasons that they believe in necessarily the, the values that these parties are pushing. I think they're more, as we talked about earlier, due to other things such as socioeconomic issues, such as reactions to maybe the EU becoming this overarching boogeyman mm -hmm. and a lack of the center parties having any real charismatic leaders and because of this because it's not ideologically driven i i see it as being maybe a shift and then if there was some charismatic centrist leader then it would come back in i i really yeah i can see why you, th you could call it a wave but i think it's different i i mean i more or less agree with you i just i just I think that it is a wave and more like when with the metaphor that I post. Yeah, I think it's building. It's building. I think it's something that it's building. It's that something that it's building that could crash. Maybe if luckily I'm wrong, it won't crash and it will be and they will merge with uh, with uh, conservative parties and they will just there would be a more polarized society, polarized society, but that would not necessarily have to be as extreme as we know that the far right can get to be historically and everything. Maybe it leads to that. Maybe it leads to an assimilation of these parties by the conservative center, conservative parties of Europe, blah, blah, blah. Maybe it can lead to that. Now, what I do see is this wave 
forming is this um, rhetorical this rhetoric forming this rhetoric coming more normal this reactionary approach to social uh, progressiveness mm. that is building up and that might end up crushing and actually making us go back in making us go back 30 years in in human and social rights in Europe 30 40 years and that's why I believe it is a, I believe it is a wave because I believe it's little by little this wave is building this wave is building this wave is building and we cannot still foresee when the wave is going to come or another metaphor maybe the dam is <laughs> the dam is getting the filled the dam and is it, getting filled but we don't know if at one if point it's gonna it'll break. Be, if it's going to break you can call it like that I'd say it's a wave because first we see a number of far-right parties entering in governments, either regional or national, in all around mm-hmm. the European Union. And increasing... In increasing their representativeness, yep. increasing their, 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 vote share. their vote share, increasing, like, even something like, something that is incredible to see nowadays. How many far-right internet bots you have right now? Twitter is... Crazy right now. I don't mean, worry, Elon Musk is gonna fix it. Well, Elon Musk <laughs> is gonna fix it. But you have all these, all these ideas that weren't ha- like 10 years ago in Europe. You say that you are anti gay marriage, and chances are that you're gonna be left like, ah, you're from another time. This is, we're going forward. And even Germany was a country that, for example, legalized gay marriage late. It was in 2018. Spain did it in 2007. Uh, the Netherlands did it slightly earlier, if I'm not wrong. Australia like, did it just recently. Eh? <laughs> 2016 or something. Mm-hmm. Like, there is, there is all of this, there is all this movement that was progressing into one idea, into one progressive, so, particularly socially speaking, Europe. And now, we are seeing the comeback and we're seeing this again, this reactionary, this reactionary approach. And I think this reactionary approach is a wave that is going through all over Europe. Well, so okay. do you think that, do you expect to see in more countries there's going to be far right parties gaining votes or, and do you think the far right parties that already have a lot of votes are going to continue to gain votes? I think that Where is. Where do you predict the future going? That is something. For example, what what I remember that the conversation that I had with you the other day, well, uh, we had them through online, this post that I sent you Mm. on how can an energy crisis with a dependent, uh, with an energy dependent Ukraine affect the internal politics of the EU countries. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that every problem that may affect the EU states is going to feed the far right at this point. And in conflict, for example, the winter that we're going to approach uh, with high prices of electricity, whatever, if there is not a, if there is not a, a really structural change in the energy market of the EU or in the economic, in the economic policy of the EU, I really think these parties will still grow. If the European Union manages to navigate this and 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 become a reliable entity for for the population living in the EU, and overcoming the 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 rhetoric of these far right parties that are saying that it's all because of the migrant or it's all because of uh, your government which is in favor of Russia and we should have a better relation with Russia, for example. If they manage to overcome that, there wouldn't be a problem. Now, will they manage to overcome that? 
It's a question. And how will particularly the energy crisis and the prices crisis and all of this economic crisis that is coming to us, that we're still not grasping how and we're still not necessarily out of the COVID crisis. We're still not necessarily out of the financial impacts of the COVID crisis. But we're, we're not necessarily like we're we're it's left to see. But I really think that they have a if we don't properly if we know I have nothing in saying in this, but if the European <laughs> Union and uh, and center and center right and center left and even leftist parties, if they don't manage to win the rhetoric yeah. of who is guilty or even not in who is guilty, but on what to do mm-hmm. and how to do it. And they don't manage to, to, to convince prop- the electorates, not just to convince the electorates, but to, to show enact. results, mm-hmm. to, to show to some results some that results. actually, that mm-hmm. actually com- uh, can, can strengthen their, their opinions. If they don't manage to do it, yes, we are going to see the rise. I think that we've talked enough. I think we've covered a lot. It's been really good, in, enlightening discussion. Thanks, guys, for joining us. If you got thank to you, this Alex. part, thank you, Juan. If thank you, you for letting me interrupt you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Alex. If so you got, if you guys got to this part of the of the show, please let us know what you yeah. If let you us like know the your format th- and let us know your who do thoughts. you agree with? Who do you agree with? Let us know your opinions on the matter. Get maybe we do it on Twitch, on live. Maybe you can criticize us live. I don't know. <laughs> Just let us know your thoughts. But we look forward to having another discussion like this in the future. And thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for being in the Geopolitical Pickle. See you next week. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in the Geopolitical Pickle. We hope you enjoyed the episode and we look forward to seeing you next time. In the meantime, follow us on Instagram for more behind-the-scenes content. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast. Thank you and see you next week.